Hello, listeners. This is Alex Maroner, co-host of the Climate Ready Podcast, and I'm here today, as usual, with my co-host, Ingrid Timbo. We're excited to return with a full season of Climate Ready in 2022, but in the meantime, we've put together a series of short interviews ahead of the annual UN Climate Change Conference taking place this year in Glasgow, Scotland. That's right, Alex. We know that many of our listeners are familiar with or have even attended a UN Climate Conference, or COP as they're known, in the past, but we also know that many others may not be as familiar with this annual gathering of climate leaders or really even understand why it's important. So in this mini-series, we'll be talking with a representative from the UK government, host of this year's climate conference, about the goals of the meetings and some of the challenges and opportunities associated with holding a major international conference during a global pandemic. We also want to share the perspectives of some of the COP participants, in particular representatives from national governments working to design and implement national climate plans under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. Recently, over 100 of these national climate planners from more than 60 different countries participated in the first ever UNFCCC Adaptation Academy, and we'll be interviewing a couple of them on their experience with the training and how they are approaching national climate planning. As some of you may know, under the UNFCCC, by 2020, all parties to the convention were tasked with enhancing their national climate change commitments. So for this mini-series, we will also be talking to a few government representatives about how their countries are approaching the task of enhancing their adaptation commitments via a new country-led partnership called the Adaptation Action Coalition, or AAC. But more on that in future episodes. Let's dive into our first interview with Vel Ganendran, Climate and Environment Advisor to the UK government, to hear more about the UK's plans for the upcoming COP. Hello, and welcome to the Climate Ready Podcast. Today we're speaking with Vel Ganendran, Climate and Environment Advisor for the UK Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office, or FCDO, where he is helping lead campaigns on adaptation and resilience ahead of the UNFCCC's next International Climate Conference, which is hosted by the UK. He has worked for the British government for over 15 years in various posts covering diplomacy, defense, and development, so it's really an honor to have him on the podcast and get his unique perspective on global progress towards the goals of the Paris Agreement. Welcome to Climate Ready, Vel. Thanks, Ingrid. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really happy to have you today, Vel. So we have a little bit of introduction for you, but could you maybe introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit more? What is your professional background and what's your current role in the UK government? Sure. Thanks, Alex. So um, I guess my professional background is largely an international development one. So I've spent most of my career in what was the UK's Department of International Development, both in the UK and in a range of roles in Africa and Asia. And now I'm the Climate and Environment Director in the FCDO. And in this current role, I guess I have quite a broad remit covering our climate strategy, uh, quite a significant level of our programming, policy work, um, and also sort of supporting our global network of climate diplomats and advisors who are sort of around the world, talking to partner countries about their policies across all climate action, not just adaptation, um, but also delivering our programming. And of course, critical uh, for the next few weeks is COP and our preparations for COP26. We're not going to just talk about COP, but we do want to obviously discuss it a little bit because it is imminent. It's it's a very big cop for a number of reasons. But for our folks, you know, some of the folks who listen to this podcast 
are very policy oriented. They are familiar with the UNFCCC and its processes, but a lot of them aren't. You know, we do have a lot more technical folks as well. And so all three of us are very invested in the UN Climate Conference. But for a more general audience or an audience who isn't as clued in um, to the UNFCCC, why would you say that those folks should be paying attention to upcoming events? So, so look, I had two moments, I guess, where I decided this was something I wanted to spend my career, the rest of my career working on. The first was when I was the ex-DFID country director in Tanzania. So there's a country whose foreign exchange largely comes from tourism, which is nature-based tourism predominantly. Its power, a lot of its power comes from hydroelectricity. So again, very dependent on nature. And a lot of its livelihoods, people's livelihoods, are sort of agriculture based. So again, hugely climate dependent. And while I was there, I really, as a development professional in that country, really seeing how climate and the future of climate in East Africa would shape Tanzania's development trajectory. So, you know, as somebody there living in that country, I really thought that has to be an important issue for them. And then my second moment was really being back in the UK before I took on this role with my kids who were, I mean, I know this is a bit of a cliche, but who were studying climate change at school and got really into it. And as I started to try and help them through that, I read on read up on the science. I know Greta Thunberg has said this, actually, but I would really encourage everybody to read the science because the moment you start reading the science and, you know, IPCC sixth report just came out. That's the moment, I think, at which it really dawns on you what is going to happen, what is already happening, I guess, and, and what what in future could happen in terms of climate impacts. And, and, you know, the UK's own Climate Change Committee has said we are not ready in the UK for these potential climate change impacts that are going to come upon us. And so we need to get ready, right? If we're not ready, we are going to face higher costs. And that's going to affect all of us in our daily lives from you know, our houses being flooded, how we move around. I mean, there's a whole series of things as individuals we need to do both to reduce those costs through our own sort of carbon footprints, but also getting ready for them. And I think, you know, I just think it's so important to, to for us all to be aware of that and to kind of inform ourselves of it because it's going to shape us and, our, and the next generations. As a follow-up to that, Vel, we're a few weeks out from the COP. And obviously, we're at a very important point when it comes to the climate crisis, and yet we're also at a unique point in in human history. We have this ongoing global pandemic, COVID-19. So why was it important for the UK to go ahead with the COP this year, despite the ongoing global pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Alex. So I totally understand that, you know, there are different views on this, and and people are concerned about going ahead with a, a major international event, you know, at a time of a pandemic. And of course, we did delay it from... Uh, November 2020 to November 2021 already because of the pandemic. You know, we are trying to balance the need to have a, a COP in person with the need to protect people. And so there are a series of measures in place to kind of to try and strike that balance. But I mean, just if I could, if I could just to take a step back, I mean, you sort of said it, Alex, a bit in your question there, but the science tells us that we are running out of time, right? Science tells us by 2050, we need to be at net zero or zero emissions, ideally. Um, and by and to be on the tra- trajectory to do that, we have to halve emissions by 2030. So we have now nine years to kind of get on track. And the latest NDC synthesis report, which looks at all of the emissions, pl- emissions reduction plans of countries, put us on a trajectory for 2.7 degrees. Now, that doesn't include all the countries we hope to come forward, but, you know, we are off track. So, I think that that kind of urgency to act, the clock is ticking and we are off track. And I think that sort of imperative really, really meant we need to have this meeting this year and we couldn't delay it again. And we, as I say, we've tried to do that in a way that 
sort of is both inclusive and allows people to come and to take part in person, but also to protect people. And that's not an easy balance to strike, but we hope we, we've kind of managed to do that. I definitely hear, you know, the urgency, right? You know, we've already delayed this one year. And so we really need to make sure that we are moving forward, that we get back on track um, or or get on track in the first place. <laughs> Since we, we haven't even got on the tracks yet. Uh, we need to get there and we don't have a lot of time to do it. So thinking about that, each COP is hosted by a different country. So the last COP was hosted by Chile, um, previously Poland, Morocco, others have hosted over the years. Um, and so each country gets to set their own agenda and priorities. What are the UK's priorities for COP26? And, you know, in your mind, what would be an example of kind of a successful outcome from this COP? Big yeah. ask. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we, we've, we've tried to articulate this in, in terms of four goals. You know, the first goal is the mitigation goal and, and to try and keep the 1.5 degrees temperature goal, limiting global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, to try and be clear that that goal remains within reach. As I said, we're kind of on a trajectory for 2.7. We need to kind of change that curve, right? We need to show that 1.5 is still possible. So that on, and that's a big, big challenge. Uh, and we need some big countries to sort of contribute to that as well and so we are working very hard to see if we can keep that goal in reach so that's that's goal one of the goals the second is on adaptation and here I often think about this in terms of the adaptation gap the gap between climate risk growing because of temperature rise and our our response to that and that gap generally is growing and you know United Nations Environment Programme has said that gap's growing and we need to kind of be clear that we're going to start to close that gap. And then the third goal is around finance and how we're mobilising the 100 billion that was set out in Copenhagen, but then reiterated in the in the Paris Agreement, the 100 billion a year by 2020. And then we've talked about trying to complete the Paris rulebook, so then the formal negotiations aspects. So those are sort of, Ingrid, those are sort of our formal goals. I mean, if I may, at a personal level, I mean, what I'm quite keen to see is is sort of a breakthrough in the collective climate consciousness on adaptation as a, as a kind of equal issue up there with mitigation. And I think the kind of developing and vulnerable countries have really led the way on this. But we need to sort of have a collective breakthrough moment where everyone realises that this has to be an issue we start to tackle now and it's not something for the future. And I think the IPCC 6 report has really sort of laid the gauntlet down. You know, Antonio Gutierrez talked about a code red for humanity. So I'd really, you know, from a personal level, I would kind of really look for that breakthrough moment, kind of really collectively getting behind the developing and vulnerable countries, almost their call for action on adaptation. That's a perfect segue as, you know, as one of the priority areas for the UK at COP this year is trying to bridge that gap between climate risks and the actions that we're taking now to be able to adapt and hopefully thrive as societies especially for those communities who are more vulnerable and who may have even done less to to contribute to climate change themselves. So we wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us about some of the key initiatives that the UK is undertaking to advance global climate adaptation and what's being done within those efforts, more specifically to ensure that they're really reaching those communities in places where adaptation is, is most needed. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, I mean, one of my first reflections is that well, adaptation covers everything, doesn't it? Almost every sector of the economy has to be thinking about how it's going to cope with climate impacts. And it cuts through everything. And, and different bits of the economy are sort of more 
progressed on that than others. So it's that risk of being everything and therefore it's really hard to articulate what's, you know, what are the priorities. So, I mean, as I've thought about it, I've tried to, to kind of group our priorities into broadly speaking, four areas. I think one is the political profile that adaptation gets uh, and trying to keep it up there in the sort of political narrative around climate action. To use the Paris Agreement terminology, it has balance with mitigation. And so we've done a number of things there. The Prime Minister launched something called the Adaptation Action Coalition in January. We had a climate and development ministerial in March, which had as, as a whole subsection dealing with climate impacts, including, I should stress here, sort of not just adaptation, but what happens when you can't adapt anymore? So this whole issue, con- contentious issue of, of losses and damage that arise from, from climate action. So really, I guess there's a whole set of activity we have to continue to pursue around keeping political attention on adaptation. The second area, I think, is around planning. And although that sounds a bit boring, I think it's really important because, you know, the risk is adaptation planning is kept in environment ministry silos and isn't included in mainstream development planning or national planning or budgets or in your fiscal frameworks. So how we sort of mainstream, I guess, adaptation planning into core planning tools and as part of that, integrating climate risk. So using kind of the climate science and the climate data to understand how climate is going to shape your economic trajectory. What I was talking about in Tanzania, you know, what does the climate science tell us about what agricultural plans are going to do? What's it going to do to water levels? And so integrating climate data into that. And we do a lot of work with the UK Met Office, I should say, in terms of working with developing countries in particular on understanding and interpreting that climate science into policy data. There, by the way, I would include locally led adaptation efforts. And the UK has kind of endorsed these locally led adaptation principles. We, we try to support others to, to endorse those. And we support a programme called the LBC Initiative for Effective Adaptation and Resilience, which is all about how you integrate locally led voices and how you make sure funding flows to local levels within adaptation planning. Third thing is subsectors or sector work. And, and like I said, again, like every sector of the economy almost has to, to think about how climate is going to affect it. But I also think not all of those sectors fully have the tools or the innovations or the pathways to become climate resilient. And I think there's a lot of work we need to do to understand those pathways and our, you know, our work with with AGWA in terms of the Adaptation Action Coalition and the, the water tracker and so on, I think is a really important way of trying to tackle some of the planning issues, but also some of those subsector pathways. But we need to do that across all key sectors, you know, infrastructure, food and agriculture. And the last thing I'd say is finance, which we've talked about, and, and making sure there's enough money to do this. You raise a lot of good points. And I think one of the, the most important ones is that the need for adaptation is so so universal. You know, it's cutting across sectors and that really will require not only some some systems level thinking, but also a lot of the planning and coordination that you mentioned vertically and horizontally across across levels of government and also bridging that gap between government and locally led initiatives to give them a platform or, or a megaphone in which to speak and to engage in the regional, the national, the international climate dialogues that are impacting them because they'll have a lot of ground truth information to to bring to the table and a lot of innovation too. So I think that's encouraging to hear that that's one of the priority areas. Yeah, I was going to say, you're really speaking our language when you talk about planning. It might be boring to some other people, but you've got a lot of planning nerds who listen to this podcast. Oh, great. Well, I can count myself among them. Yeah, yeah, they'll be really, they'll be really pleased to hear about that. And great, you also mentioned the AAC, the Adaptation Action Coalition. 
preview for our listeners, we will also be doing another podcast specifically on the work of the AAC and these sub-sectoral work that Bell mentioned, because it is really important. You, know, you said something, adaptation covers everything, right? And, and we know that that's true, but then that means it also can sometimes get lost. And so that's kind of the challenge is making sure that it does stay level with mitigation in the climate conversation. You did mention number four was, was finance. And you mentioned earlier the 100 billion initiative that developed countries would deliver 100 billion per year for climate finance, for climate action by developing countries by 2020. We know that this isn't necessarily enough, right, to cover um, everything that, that we need to do on adaptation. Are there other ways that we can leverage additional finance for adaptation and resilience? Are there other initiatives that you're working on or working with public-private partnerships, for example, um, to, to leverage additional funding? It's a really important and really difficult question, right? And um, I mean, the first thing I would say is the 100 billion as a kind of goal in itself, we also need, is, is important, but we also need to make sure that within that share that goes to adaptation grows, not as a zero sum taking away from mitigation, but as we grow the overall kind of finance pot that we grow the, the adaptation proportion because it isn't enough and we do need to make sure there is more public money going into this. And I think that's important because adaptation you know, unlike a lot of mitigation investments, adaptation quite often doesn't generate a financial return. So if you're, I don't know, making a road more climate resilient, you're not necessarily going to generate a financial return off that in the same way as building a solar plant. And so the argument for public money is stronger on adaptation. And so that's why we, you know, we will not come off the gas in terms of pushing the 100 billion and a share of that that goes to adaptation. But I do think that is, as you said, totally not enough. And we do need to mobilise more resources in into adaptation. I guess I think of it in, in different ways. The first is the private sector that operates in the adaptation space. So which are the companies that are innovating new types of seeds or flood defences or early warning systems that people can use? Uh, and that sort of private sector around the adaptation space needs to be incubated and grown. And there's a number of things we're doing there through our sort of development finance institutions. So these are the bits of most donor agencies that invest loans and equity into businesses through through that part. And there's a group of DFIs, development finance institutions, that are trying to mobilise around adaptation and resilience. And um, that was launched. It's called the DFI Collaborative, launched at the French-hosted Finance and Commons Summit last November and sort of reinforced at the G7. And we're trying to put some momentum behind that so that there is this kind of availability of capital to support the private sector in that space. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is a bit like TCFD, where you're trying to encourage the wider private sector to understand the climate risk. And I think one, one area here that I'm quite keen to unpack more and develop is, is how the wider private sector incorporates physical climate risk into its financial metrics. And the insurance industry is great at this, right? It, it can say, OK, if your house gets flooded, this is what it's going to cost you and here's the premiums you need to pay. And if you, or take a different example, if you put a smoke alarm in your house, we will reduce your cost of your insurance. So the insurance industry is great at that, but the wider financial system, the wider economic system is less good at integrating that sort of physical climate risk into its financial metrics. So we, with others, at sort of about two years ago, launched the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, which is trying to do that, trying to build that bridge between the sort of physical climate risk metrics and the financial metrics. But we need to see that taken up more widely because once it does, then once businesses are fully understanding the physical climate risk, they'll be looking for solutions, right? And as the minute they start looking for solutions, the minute they're willing to pay for those solutions, and then you can start to see 
some of those solutions arise. So I think there's a kind of, as well as the public money, we need to kind of invest in the private sector here, which I think is pretty nascent and we need to grow that pretty quickly and we need to transform the system so that it is incorporating that. I should also say, by the way, a huge amount of un, unsung effort, I think, is what developing countries themselves are investing in uh, adaptation efforts, right? They are Bangladesh, Kenya, I know a number of countries across the world are investing huge amounts of their own resources into into adaptation and we need to find ways to kind of support that and reinforce that domestic resource mobilization as well. It seems that a lot of the kind of economics of adaptation are still, the science is still growing, but already there are clear indications that, you know, money invested in adaptation is money well spent and will return 10, 20 fold as far as avoided damages and kind of mitigating risk. And so it's also good to see how that risk can be baked into the cost of business to really motivate companies to want to take more action around adaptation. And so as we're getting towards the end, we've talked some about the need to close the adaptation gap, to integrate climate science into policy, and to mobilize vast sums of financial flows to meet the climate challenge. But before we let you go, is there anything else on your mind, either around COP26 or adaptation more generally? Thanks, Alex. I guess I was expecting you to ask me a bit more about water specifically, but um... I'm really pleased we're working through the AAC with Agua on water, but I think water as being on the front line of climate change and climate impact. So I'm really keen that we continue this kind of conversation with you and you know with listeners and so on about how we really make sure that water is taken seriously in the, in the climate effort. Oh, a hundred percent agree. And you know when you talked earlier about adaptation covers everything, that's something we often say with water too. It's everywhere and then so sometimes it ends up being nowhere because it is so diffuse within the economy, within all of our kind of systems. And so, you know, one of the things that we are doing towards COP is obviously trying to raise the profile of water as well, not only for adaptation, but also mitigation. We do hear about it more and more on the adaptation side, which is good. That's very encouraging. But where I think it is still missing sometimes is on the mitigation side of the conversation and the reality that most of our mitigation solutions have water requirements. And so if we don't Absolutely, yeah. if we don't have water security, we're not going to be able to meet those commitments. So those are things that we're also thinking about and considering and making sure that water is a part of that conversation. So thanks for mentioning it, because it's certainly something we're we're super concerned about. Agreed. Well, All right, Vel, thanks again for your time, and we'll wish you the best of luck in the weeks ahead. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Vel. I really enjoyed that conversation with Vel, Alex, and I really empathize with the challenge of pulling off a major international conference during a global pandemic. But... As I think he rightly said, the stakes are too high. We can't wait another year for global action on both mitigation and adaptation. We really have to be moving forward now. And when we were talking to Vel, it was really encouraging to hear him speak so passionately about the need for increased ambition on adaptation simultaneously with mitigation, because as he noted, there's a major divide between existing climate risks and adaptation action. The funding gap explains part of the story, but we also need more credible adaptation plans, projects, tools, and and approaches. So it's great to hear that the UK government is supporting those elements as well. 
Well, I hope that this conversation was able to shed at least a little bit of light on what's at stake for all of us in Glasgow next month. We'll be back in the coming days with more insights from national climate planners working to build a climate resilient future. Stay tuned and stay safe out there, everyone. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Moroner and Ingrid Timbo.